all of you here this Sunday morning. In light of that last song, I'd like for us to take a moment to close our eyes and to have a few deep breaths to prepare ourselves to hear Scripture and the Word of the Lord. And so let's do that now, just a few deep breaths. Lord, you are present here. We are here in worship. We are here to hear your word and your scriptures. We are here for our minds to be enlightened, for our lives to be encouraged. We are here to be strengthened by you today. And so, Lord, we pray that at this time you would move deeply in our hearts. We pray for the instilling, the infilling of your Holy Spirit now. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to welcome all of you here. My name is Wayne Park. It's my privilege to serve as a lead pastor of this congregation. And um, uh, each week, as I stand in front here, it's a wonderful privilege to encourage and to be the one that gets to speak words, hopefully that give you hope and strength each Sunday as you prepare for your work week, for your work week. And on that note, We're in a series talking about work. It's called Sanctifying Monday to Friday. And we're talking about work and spirituality. So we're talking about our faith. Let me do this way. We're talking about faith and work. And on the one hand, we have that which is private. On Sunday, in holy spaces like this, we do the religious thing. Monday to Friday, maybe Monday to Saturday, we don't do the religious thing. We do the public thing. We do the things out in the world. Here's the thing, as you grow as a Christian, as your faith begins to develop beyond the beginning stages, your faith begins to mature, you're going to begin to see that dividing our lives into faith and secular, into sacred, into secular, this is my spiritual life on Sundays only, and Monday to Saturday I live out in the world. You're going to begin to see that there's something wrong with that. You're going to feel like you have split personality disorder. And when we confront that, we begin to see as our faith grows and as you take the next step and you grow deeper in your faith, you begin to say, man, this faith, it needs to touch everything. I'm serious about my, my faith and my spirituality, and therefore it can't just be a Sunday thing, can it? Shouldn't my faith touch all of life? Why should it be separated like oil and water? And how do we bring faith and work back together? That's what this series is about. It's not just about Sunday, but it's about Monday to Friday. It's not just about what we do here in sacred places, but also what we do in secular places and in our real, quote-unquote, our real lives. My hope for this series is that personally, especially today, that personally you will be challenged um, and that you'll have a vision for work, for your work, a vision for what you want to see yourself doing. We have a range of people here, some that are older, some that are younger. And as you think about the question, I think we're all asking the question, even those of us that are a little bit on the older side, um, I'm knocking on 40 this year. And what do I want to be when I grow up? What do I want to do when I grow up? I have a friend who served in the army for 20 years. And when I met him, he told me he's retired. And I'm like, dude, you're not even 40 yet. How could you be retired? Well, I'm retired from the military. I served my time. And now I get to do what I really want to do with my life. 
And so the, he's finding fulfillment in a second career. All to say that my hope is that you will find not just fulfillment, but a vision for what you want to do, quote-unquote, when you grow up. We're all growing up. But also for us as a church, for Woven to catch a vision as well for who we want to be when we grow up, so to speak. Who do we want to be down the road? Which direction are we headed? I think we want to be a church. I want us to be a church that's not just content to do the Sunday thing. It's my burning passion and vision for Woven to be a church that's touching all areas of life, whether it's economics, science, medicine, engineering. We, I want us to be a church that has, influential, uh, that has influence Monday to Friday in all the areas of our city's life. And so what we're talking about here is work about tomorrow, about what we want to be in the future, who we want to be when we grow up. Here's the thing. In order to look forward, you must look backwards as well. If you want to know where you're headed, you have to know where you're coming from. For example, if you come from a place where you believe that the entire universe was accidental, that a couple of atoms smashed together and boom, you had, you had liquid life on earth. It all was an accident. There was no design. There was nothing intelligent. There was no creator. It just happened by accident. And in the end, we're just going to return to that. Then actually, your view of the future is pretty depressing. How we view our past determines our future. How we view our work, how we view our work comes from how we view our history. Friends, what is your history? What is your history? What is your background? For me as a Korean American, um, almost with feet in two worlds, I'm an American citizen. At the same time, I have this Korean heritage. I still need to eat my Korean food. It's my comfort food. I, I place myself in this two worlds. I'm in this narrative of this history where I'm American and as American as apple pie. That's what I believe. I grew up in, I grew up in, I was born and raised in America, but at the same time, I have a different story going on. What is our history, friends? What is your history? Today, I'd like to talk about your history going all the way back to the book of Genesis. Your history going all the way back to the book of Genesis because your history will determine your reality. Who we are will determine where we're going. Listen to this story. There was a man named Leslie Newbegin. And for those of you that have been taking this reframe Bible study, his name comes up. He's kind of a big deal in theological discussions. Leslie Newbegin was a scholar, but he was also a missionary to India. And while he was in India, he befriended a Hindu scholar. And he had a conversation one day with a Hindu scholar who told him, I just finished reading your Christian Bible. And it was a big surprise to me. When Christian missionaries first came to India and they gave us the Bible, they gave it to us like it was just another book to read. I've just finished reading this book and you need to know that your Bible is a completely unique book. It makes sense of everything in history. Friends, study the Bible. Study the scriptures. It makes sense of everything in history. It makes sense of everything in history. And so today what we're going to do is go all the way back to the beginning. If you've ever been part of a situation where you're like, what really happened back there? 
I want to go back to the source. Let's find out what really happened. Today, we're going to go to the very beginning and tell three true stories. And if you look in your bulletin, you'll find the notes. Three stories of what happened in the beginning. And these three stories, like the Hindu scholar said, these three stories, by the end of today's talk, will make sense of everything. I'm that confident. These three stories that I'm going to tell today will make sense of everything in history and will make sense of who you are and where you're going as a Christian. And so let's begin with that first true story. And that first true story is the true story of what happened in the garden. What really happened back there in the garden? Well, she made me eat it. Well, there was a snake and it was an apple. Actually, it just says it was a fruit. What happened back there? Let's go back to Genesis 3 and find out our history as Christians, even before we are American or Korean. As Christians, this is our living history. So we go back to Genesis 3 and look with me at verse 17. Verse 17. And this is what it says. Because God's talking to Adam, because you've eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying... You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it. All the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow, and you will eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your face you will eat bread until you return to the ground. And so what we have here is a picture of almost a punishment. Yes, that's what it is. You sinned, Adam. And as a result of the sin, everything is broken now. All of creation, it's, 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 it's off kilter. Order has been disrupted. And instead of the yield of the earth giving you food, you have to work for it now. And it's going to make you suffer and sweat. And it, you're going to bleed. I mean, how many of you have ever bled on the job? Blood, sweat, and tears. I'm, I think Bennett has. I think Bennett's bled on the job. Blood, sweat, and tears. Why? So that you can put food on the table. And how many of you here at this moment, whatever age you are, whether you're retiring or you're just dreaming about, you're full of hope and this is what I want to do when I grow up. How many of you know that experience where you're like, man, this is not fun. How many of you feel like I've put in what feels like blood, sweat, tears, and a lot of stress my job has given me heart conditions. Well, that's what we're talking about here. The first story, or so it seems, of work. This is where work begins. It was a punishment, right? Hang on. There's another story that I read. I read it in a book by a, a Jewish rabbi called Thou Shall Prosper. It's a very interesting book. He tells a story. I've tweaked it. Listen to this story. It's a wonderful story. It's also very sad, tragic. The story goes like this. There was a man who one day committed a very serious crime. He committed a very serious crime. And because of his mistake, he was caught and put in prison for the rest of his life. And his sentence, his punishment, was to turn a crank. And so in his cell, he was forced to turn this thing for the rest of his life. And as he's in his cell, he's turning this crank and years and years go by, finally 10 years go by, and he's like, well, at least I'm, I'm like all cut. 
I look like Hercules. I'm all, I'm all, you know, I've got a good workout out of it. At least I've gotten that. And he tells the guard, he says, you know, turning this crank, it's not that bad. It's only been 10 years. I feel good about it. I know what I'm really doing here. I'm turning this crank because on the other side of this wall, even though I can't see it, I can hear the voices. There's people gathering here to pick up the bread from the grain that I'm grinding. I know that this crank turns a giant millstone and it turns it and grinds the wheat to bread. And the guard looked at him and he said, no, that's not what's on the other side of the wall. And the man, his shoulders fell and then he just went back to his grinding. 20 years go by. 20 years go by of working this crank grinding or whatever it is, just turning that thing, and he's starting to gray a little bit at the temples. I, I was looking in the mirror the other day. I couldn't believe it. I have so much, like, white flecks. I'm actually becoming old. <laughs> so 20 years go by, and uh, he says to the guard, I heard water. I know what's on the other side of the wall. I've been working for 20 years. I'm turning a water wheel. There's a water wheel on the other side, and I'm turning this thing, and it's pushing water out to irrigate the fields for the villagers. My work is meaningful. I know it. And the guard, he said, hey, man, that's not it. That's not it. Dejected, he continues to grind for another 10 years, and finally 30 years go by. 30 years go by working this job. And on the 30th anniversary, he turns to the guard, and he says, Tell me I did it for the children. Tell me I did this for our kids. Tell me that I'm turning this thing so that there's a merry-go-round on the other side. That heavy as it is, I'm turning, and the children can at least climb on and have some happiness and laugh. Tell me I'm doing this for the kids. And the guard finally, his shoulders fell, and he said, Come on, man. And he takes, his, takes, him, takes him out, still chained, and he takes him to the other side of the wall, and what does he see? Nothing. There's nothing there. 30 years of turning this crank, and on the other side of the wall, there's just, a, that, that's it, there's just a crank. He's been turning it for nothing. And at that moment, the man looks up at heaven and he says, God, retire me. And God strikes him down, his heart stops, and he retires and goes to heaven. This is a very sad story. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I tell that story because many, many Christians believe that's our history. That's what work is about. Many, many Christians mistakenly believe that that's the story. And friends, I'm here to tell you that's not what we believe as Christians. It's patently wrong. We do not exist on this earth to turn a meaningless crank that, that does nothing except cause us pain and suffering, and in the end, retirement means I can go to heaven, and that's where I escape. This is absolutely wrong. Our Christian, the, the technical word here is cosmology. Cosmology, cosmos. It's how we view the cosmos. It's what we believe is up and what's down. Cosmology is our foundational worldview. The proper Christian foundational worldview is not that work is meaningless, not that this is all hopeless and futile. The proper Christian worldview says that turning the crank actually has purpose, 
There's meaning, and we're redeeming the world. We're redeeming the world. Understand, friends, when Jesus died and rose again, he didn't escape from reality. It's not about escapism. Jesus died, but when he rose again, he rose again in matter, in flesh, in substance, so that he can resurrect, redeem not just human flesh, but all of creation. Friends, it's the wrong story that I told you. The right story that we believe as Christians is that there is value and there is meaning to our work and there is significance. And certainly the objective is not to just escape and go to heaven. It's not just to get our souls to heaven. It is to redeem the earth where we are now. That's why it's so important for Woven, I think, to understand this message deeply, that the Christian doctrine of, of, of creation is not to escape creation, it's to redeem all of creation. It's to redeem everything in and through your work. You never thought that you would come to church and hear teaching on retirement. And we're not a young congregation, but we're not an old congregation. We have a varying ages. Average, we're, a, we're about in the middle. People start thinking, what are my plans for my retirement? What are my plans for my future? And I'd like to offer three biblical insights on retirement. Because in order to understand work, or let me rephrase, in order, in order to understand retirement, we have to understand our work. In order to understand work, we have views on retirement. Three things I'd like to talk about. First, the first question is, what is it that I really want to do? What do I really want to do with my life? Not all of us have the luxury of asking that question, I know. But ask it, what, what, purposes have God, what purposes am I designed for? What is it in my life that I really want to do? And possibly after I retire, what will I really be free to do? Like I said, I told you about my friend he served 20 years in the military, and he retired before he turned 40. And then he started what he really wanted to do. He went back to school. He got a degree in counseling. And he's, he's an, a very, very gifted therapist, in my opinion. A very, very gifted counselor. But what is it with my life that I want to do? It's never too late, I think, to ask that question. I think it's never too late I think it's never too late to ask that question. Because if, if we think I'm going to work until I'm 65, I've, made it, I've, I've reached the benchmark where I can get my pension, I'm going to retire, maybe I'll retire at 60. If possible, I'll retire at 55, and then I'm just going to live the rest of my life at ease. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of people who've retired early and then just checked out, like died. I think it's in our DNA to work. Not to slave, but to work meaningfully. Second question that we can ask ourselves is, what job would be so satisfying that I would never want to retire? What job would be so satisfying that I would never want to retire? That book that I mentioned, Thou Shall Prosper, the guy that wrote that, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, his personal philosophy is that we should never retire. We should never retire. I don't know exactly if that's for all of you. Some of us 
retire, maybe move on to different work, but there's a sense where our lives were meant to work. Not suffer, but work. The third question is, what is my vision of retirement? Just some thoughts to jot down. Do you see yourself just working enough so that you can get your pension, or do you see yourself just getting to that point where then you're, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. I have a friend who I grew up with in elementary school. He lives in another state. He's not here. And um, we got reconnected on Facebook. And I watched his Facebook feed over the years. He, he does work in another state that apparently he does not enjoy. For my friend, the one thing that he looks forward to in life is the annual family cruise. The annual family cruise where for five, seven days, he'll take seven days off from work and take his family on a cruise to the Caribbean or something. But the thing is, every year he comes back from the cruise and then he resets the clock on his Facebook feed. And he'll say, 364 more days to go till my cruise. 363 days, 362 And I see that and I'm like, that's tragic. It's very sad that our lives are lived only for vacation. I think God's interested in the other 364 days. God's interested in how we're living out our lives there. Because when the day comes and we can finally retire and take that big cruise, we might never return. (laughs) Kind of like the guy in the crank, right? So friends, this is on the top. This is in the top of your notes. It's just a question. What work makes my heart beat? What is it that I really want to do? What captivates me? What makes me never want to retire? What work partners me with the kingdom of God and brings heaven to earth? Look, I know this is kind of dreamy talk. This is the kind of stuff that we talk about when we're young. Like, this is, this is what I want to do when I grow up. This is what I want to, you know, it's, it's when we're still starry-eyed. Don't lose that. Don't lose that. It's still good to have that, even though some of us, for those of us, are, you know, midlife crisis, nearing the salt and pepper hair, and we're like, we got to be realistic, we have bills to pay, we have life, but never lose that sight, never lose sight of that, that hopefulness, that there is something good I still want to do with my life. So friends, I guess that's an encouragement for you today. Don't lose hope. Let's move on with the second story. The second story is why did God put us to work in the garden in the first place? And this is going to take us to Genesis 2. Listen to this. There's some interesting stuff here. Actually, work didn't begin in Genesis 3. Work began before that in Genesis 2. It was not a punishment. In Genesis 2.15, God takes man, puts him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. In other words, work existed before the fall. Work existed before. It was not just a punishment. Work was always meant and designed to be a good thing. It was meant to be, it was meant to be a good thing. God put us in the garden, whatever your garden is, to take care of it, to keep it. Not to slave away and to toil and to work and to suffer. That actually is not what we believe as Christians. That's not what we believe as Christians. So three things. Why did God put us in the garden in the first place? Number one, to be his representatives. To be his representatives. That's the first fill in the blank under that second heading. Now listen carefully to this. This is very interesting. I discovered this learning, uh, actually watching the reframe course. Lesson three. I'm letting you know, for those of you that have access to the file, watch lesson three. My favorite professor, Ian Proven, 
the man with a Scottish accent who always talks like this, and that's what I got it from after studying. Anyway, he was the one that talks about this if you watch that video, but it's very interesting. God put us in the garden to be his representatives for this purpose. Listen, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the way the language is speaking there in the first two books of Genesis is very similar, very similar to the language of ancient temple building. Now, when we look at the literature of ancient times, very, very ancient times, Babylonian, Akkadian, Sumerian, they have documents, and in some of their documents, they talk about how to build a temple. When you build a temple, the first thing you lay is a foundation, you set up the pillars, you put the roof in, and this is actually how the first two chapters of Genesis speak. It uses the similar and common language of building a temple. Now listen, if you've just built a temple and you've finished, what's the last thing that you do? What's the last thing that you do if you've just finished building a temple? You install the God in the middle, whether it's Zeus or Athena or Apollos or whoever. You install the God, the golden statue in the middle. That's what you do. The interesting thing is when you look at the first two chapters of Genesis, God builds this temple, he erects it, he completes it. This is the language that's being used in the first two chapters. All of creation is God's temple, but who does he put in the middle? Does he put himself? Does he put a statue? In all of creation, God completes the work, and, on the, and, and, and in the end, the concluding, the concluding piece that he puts in is man. Not a God, not himself. He puts in an image of himself in the center. You see this in Genesis 1.26. In Genesis 1.26, he says, let us make man in our own image. And he places man, the image of God, in the center of the temple. He doesn't put himself. He doesn't put an idol. He puts a facsimile. He puts a facsimile of himself, an image of God. Friends, do you understand that all of you bear God's image? You wear the image of God. We look like God. Literally, it says, the likeness, according to the likeness of God. What this means is when you go to work tomorrow and you arrive in your building or you arrive in your office space or your workplace or your school or wherever you're at, you are the facsimile of God in that place. You are the centerpiece of His temple. You are the image of God. In other words, this holy responsibility tells us that when we uh, walk into our workplaces, we are, in a very profound sense, God's representatives. Very profound sense, God's representatives, because you wear His image. And as a Christian, as a Christian, what does that mean to be a representative for God? Why did God put you where he put you today? Or tomorrow, I should say. Why? Because he wants you there. He wants you there. He wants you there as his representative. That's why you're there, as his image bearer. The second reason why he put us in the temple is to be leaders in our fields, to be leaders. And if you look at Genesis 1.26, that's what it says. 
I'm sorry, is it 126? Yes, 126. It says, God put them there to rule over all of the fish, all the birds, all crawling things. He put you there. He put humanity in the garden to rule over everything. I believe that Christians are leaders, even if they're not leading. I believe Christians are put in creation to rule over all. Christians are put there to lead, even if you're not at the top. Even if you're not at the top, you're still leading. And you don't have to be at the top to lead. He puts us there to rule over all of creation. Friends, what we're talking about is divine authority. Divine authority. You have a divine authority where you are, where you work. There is a divine authority conferred upon you. You can just sense it. When there's a Christian that's spirit-filled, that's faithful, that's living with integrity, people listen. People trust. People follow, even if you're not at the top. And third and last, he puts us in the garden to lead by serving, to lead by serving. Those words, to cultivate and caretake the garden, it speaks about almost the priestly duty of serving. Serving, ministering to, taking care of its religious language to cultivate and to keep, to guard. So if you think, if you think I'm in, I'm in work so I can, st- I'm, I'm here because I'm a slave. I'm a slave on my job. Actually, God doesn't put slaves in the center of the temple. God puts rulers. God puts kings and queens God puts priests, and you, friends, are all of the above. As a Christian in your workplace, according to this biblical theology, you are a ruler, a king or queen, and a priest. You're not a slave. You're not a slave. That's that's not what we believe. We conclude with the third and last true story. The third and last true story comes directly from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So actually, work didn't start in chapter 3. It didn't start in chapter 2. It started in chapter 1 in the very first verse of the Bible. In Genesis 1, verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. He was working from the very beginning. He was working from the very beginning In fact, God was working and then he rested on the seventh day. He rested on the seventh day. And so what he does is he shows us work. He models work for us. And he instills it into the DNA of everything. Of everything that we do. In closing, I want to leave you with a quote. If you look on the bottom of your notes, there's a quote there by A.W. Tozer that I think reflects this attitude. And it goes like this. Forgive the gender-specific language. It just talks about men. A.W. Tozer wrote in the 50s, a long time ago. Women, I hope you can apply this to yourselves as well. A.W. Tozer says, let every man abide in the calling wherein, wherein he is called and his work. What he's saying is, all of you, Be faithful where God has placed you today. Let every man and woman abide in the calling where they are called, and their work will be sacred 
as sacred as the work of the ministry. It's not what a person does that determines whether their work is sacred or secular. It is why they do it. The motive is everything. Let a person sanctify the Lord God in their heart and they can thereafter do nothing common. They can do no common work. In closing, I want to tell you a story. Last story. And it's about somebody here. Last Sunday, uh, I, had, I opened up the trunk, or not the trunk, uh, the hood of my car, and I asked Bennett, I asked Bennett to look at it. Bennett, is it okay if I share about what you did for me this week? You all right with that? So he looks, at the, he looks at it, and he says, your water pump is out and your radiator is out. You need to replace both of them, and this is how much it's going to cost. The, the problem is Bennett lives about 40, mile, 40, 40 minutes away from me, and, I, and he says, just take it nearby to somebody nearby. And I go on Monday morning to a local shop, and they quote me, they quote me almost $1,500 more than what Bennett told me. And they misdiagnosed it. They misdiagnosed it. So I was like, wow, not good. I go to another place, another shop. They correctly diagnose it, but they've still quoted me at about probably $1,000 more than what he quoted me. Now, I'm not, I don't think that this is, this is a difference between fair wages and not. I hope not. I hope that I paid you a fair wage. And so by the time I got through the week, I ended up back at Bennett's doorstep at his shop. He was right all along. He was correct all along with the initial diagnosis, whereas several mechanics, several had looked at it and they were all wrong. And he quoted me a price according to his book that I believe was fair. Now, I know that Bennett toils. I know that he works. I know that some, he literally uh, sweats tears and blood for his work. And I don't know what your view of work is, Bennett. I don't know if this is what you dream about at night, that you love, that this is something that fulfills your soul. I don't know if your dream at the end is just, I want to retire and live on a beach. But I would hope that somehow you're seeing how you are restoring all of creation. I don't know how that's possible. I don't know how you, that, that for you that's going to work out, but I would hope for you that you would see that there's redemptive quality and something beautiful about what you do because you do it with excellence. You do it better than half the, I mean, probably more than half the mechanics in this city. And you were right all along. And so it's like I'm speaking to one person now. But I also hope for all of you that you would be a leader in your field. I hope you take quite seriously when it says in Genesis 1.26, rule over everything. You're not going to come in and say, I'm the boss now. But you're going to come in and through your quiet and faithful witness that people will say, listen to that lady, listen to that guy. They know what they're talking about. They're honest and trustworthy and they do darn good work. And if you're not at the top, maybe the CEO will say, that person is my most dependable, reliable worker. Work in a way so that you are not just out at, you're not at it for the dollar, but that you are the imago Dei. That's the Latin word for the image of God. That you're recognizing, I am the image of God in this place. That's who I want to be. Work in that way. Be the one that 
complains the least. And if you do complain, at least you're doing it in a healthy way. That you're saying, boss, this is what the people are saying. We need to, we need to change some things, make our company stronger. Be the one that is a true leader and leads by serving. Be the one that is truly the image of God where you are at today. Can we do that? Amen. Let's close our eyes. Father God, we know that you've placed us, the children of Abraham. And as Christians, we're not Jewish. We know that we don't even deserve to be included. But through your Son, Christ, you welcomed us to be part of your plan and design. You put us in the garden to work it. And that we wish to do faithfully and to be your image bearers. And so at this time, I want to give you a few minutes just to talk back to God, to pray, to reflect. Lord God, some of us feel like we're turning a crank and uh, we need to see that it's more than just that. Help us to have a vision for our work. Help us to have a vision for what good we want to contribute to this world. Help us, Lord, to take some courageous steps, some big steps, bold steps, of faith at work so that we can partner with you in the redemption of all creation. And Lord, we pray for Woven that you would equip us to equip others even better in this area so that we might be a church that helps people not just on Sundays but Monday to Friday. We offer ourselves to you at this time. Build and do with us as you will. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.